we are doing a pro tip bonanza. Get comfortable and be ready to jot down some notes as no doubt there will be something in here for everyone. So buckle in, here we go. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. We have a unique episode today. We're breaking the mold. Every once in a while, we just have to shake it up. But before we get rolling, we have Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and myself, Mark Raycroft, as your hosts this week. Michael, how's it in Denver? Pretty nice in Denver. It's... uh. I don't know. It was up to forty-five degrees and blue. You know, it's a tip. I sound like a broken record. It's blue skies and November. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. I'm ready for some snow. Okay. The mountains are getting snow, but we're not. Sure. So if you're into skiing, it's the right place to be. If you're into winter wildlife photography, you have to hit the road. Yep. You drive an hour and you got the snow. But if you want to golf, you can golf down in Denver and you're fine. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. You can still golf. Wow. People do. I don't, but people do. I don't. I don't. I don't want to alienate any of our listeners, but I'm not a big golf guy, so it doesn't really get on my radar. I'm more, you know, I have time. I'm in in the wilderness somewhere, although I have been known to pick up a hockey stick now and then. But Ron, that's what those Canadians do. Well, yeah. it's it's part of it. It's an indoctrin. Yeah, we have to love it. It's addictive, man. Once you get into the game and start playing it, chasing that ball or that puck around, depending if you're playing ball hockey or ice hockey, both are good. Both are fun and both come with the same reward when you pop that goal. How's it's, it going in Wyoming, Ron? We are not playing hockey. Why um, not? It's probably more like winter there than Denver. What's your excuse? It probably is a little bit. No, they do have a hockey club, but, yeah, I'm not a hockey guy. Um, Wyoming team. Hockey teams, not clubs. Well, just saying. Club. It's just a saying. Club. No, no. Several it's a team. teams. <laughs> That's several a league. In okay. the club. Okay. When when you break it down, you have the teams, and then when there are several teams, <laughs> it's it's a league, a league of teams. We are definitely have... breaking the mold today. <laughs> so any more? I have to ask. I just my curiosity is there. Any more news Zero. on these? cats on these mountain lions because they're just you know such an exciting animal to get once or twice in a lifetime so zero word on those cats um you know like i said on that initial podcast there's there's three ways you can get a mountain lion shot you get lucky find a kill or run them with dogs and i don't believe in running them with dogs for the sake of a picture um i did get some pictures sent to me from uh, a local gal here in town that she got some outstanding images, um, but it was it was treat. I so, see. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I don't. I don't want to throw opinions out there. Well, I do, but you know, I, I reserve them. I uh, keep them to myself most of the time. But for the sake of photos, I, I'm on the same page. You know, running a dog to, or running cats with dogs to get. For the purpose purely of getting photos, to me, is not worth the stress of the situation yeah. on the camera yeah. or simply about photography. Um, but, yeah, no but it, no more word on those guys. So, yeah, I, I'm sure they're still in the same area, but they're so reclusive. Sure. They're tough to find anyway. So once they move, it's a done deal unless you just get lucky. Well, let us know if you get lucky. 
still eyes out there. <laughs> uh, in Ontario here, it is snapping cold, but very little snow. It's been uh, it's been an unusual year. We normally by January we'd have a foot or two of snow on, on several occasions. It would come and go, and um, but it's barren ground and and very cold right now, which isn't ideal for wildlife. I mean, it's easier for them to get around and they can still feed easily on what's on the forest floor. But, you know, the snow does act as an insulating insulating layer, and that's absent right now with these really cold temperatures. But it's going to go up again uh, to around freezing this coming weekend, be more comfortable. And finally, I'm shaking this cold. It wasn't the cold. It couldn't have been just a cold. And it's had to be the flu. I mean, really. So I'm I know we've talked about it, but I am going after to film and do some new winter vlogs on, on several species. I'm chomping at the bit to get out. I've been editing. My fingers are worn down to stubs. The mouse is dead. I've got to go and take <laughs> pictures again. So hopefully over the next week, week and a half, Pilly, my wife, and I will have the opportunity to get out to a few different destinations for some content to share some new material with everybody. So, so if you do go north, on. though, if you yeah. go north, do you run into snow? Or is it the same up there, too? Absolutely. So, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, first place I want to go is three hours north, and there, uh, it looks like winter wonderland there right now from what I've been seeing on social media, two feet of snow. So um, the moose, the foxes, the pine martens, the wintering birds, uh, um, evening grosbeaks. beaks. I think I've seen pine grosbeaks beaks, too. Um, and then there are grouse. It's all of that, you know, very much, sorry, with great winter habitat right now. So it's worth that. The place I was going to go for snowy owls is an hour and a half east of me, and there would be no snow there. And I would prefer to have snow versus them just on brown grass in the field. So I'm going to wait that one out. And hopefully, I think by the end of the this coming week, we're supposed to have a fair amount of snow on the ground, or at least enough to make it look like winter. And then maybe I can switch over and do owls. I also want to try and do some elk here in Ontario uh, before we've got some time before they drop their antlers. They drop them later than moose and whitetails here. Mm -hmm. So I, I'd like to get some of them, try to find a, a mature bull or two in winter settings here in Ontario to represent eastern elk. So that's the second destination to try. So stay tuned on that. So I have some exciting news. I've joined the fold. As of this afternoon, I ordered my Osmo Pocket nice. accessory kit. <laughs> And I'm hoping it gets here within the next couple of days so that we can take it on this first trip to try with for Pine Martins and tell the story for vlogging. Uh, we're going to take the Osmo 2 and the phone and other equipment as well, but I just want to get this pocket rolling um, because Pilly will be running one of them too, and we can. I think it'll be a more dynamic story with more than one feed coming through for the sake of the vlog content. I think uh, you'll I think you'll have fun with it. it. It's a great tool. I mean, you take your take your phone, draw a little box around the subject uh, and it follows it wherever it goes, unless something, you know, impedes the, impedes the subject or cuts you off. It'll continue to follow. It's, I think it'll be a great tool. Now we had a conference call yesterday, the three of us mapping out some things and planning for 2019. And it was a great call. And one of the things that came up that I'm excited to share with our listeners, for those of you that are into vlogging and want some way to document your trips that's super easy with the Osmo Pocket was that one of you did the test and we talked about it on the previous podcast about whether or not the Osmo Pocket would recognize something other than your human face for tracking and 
it, it works on the dog, right? So yeah. it, it if it works dog. on worked on the dog in the yard, so it's going to work on wildlife. And what's exciting about that for me is obviously this, these small lenses don't have any magnification worth talking about. It's about telling a story about B-roll. But when the accessories are launched, and I've, I've seen online, hopefully it's the middle of January, so by the time you're hearing this, hopefully they're available. But the Bluetooth option, what I'm excited about is you put the pocket, the Osmo pocket on a base stand, and it's so small, the animals shouldn't notice, unless, don't do it with scent-driven animals, but like ungulates, for instance, um, if you plant it on, on the trail and you, and you get back, and I'd be curious to see what the range, the capability of the Bluetooth functionality is, but if we can be back 30 yards and, and have it planted and have the animal, the moose walk by and be able to pan with it, it just would create some uh, footage, a really cool perspective very easily, you know, at, at a small cost um, for these for this product to do that so i'm excited about that application for wildlife and in addition i mean primarily just our roles i mean even if we're hiking up the mountain for bighorn sheep to put it ahead of somebody and have a you know scrolls we walk right. by and i'm really excited the fact that all of us will have one and the fact that you can activate it in seconds instead of a minute is what it takes me to get my osmo 2 all going uh, we see one of us doing something cool or the vistas neat that we're walking by. We don't have to necessarily say, I don't have to yell out, hey, Ron, stop, go back 40 yards. Please do that again. I can set it up. I can see what you're walking into. And in three seconds, I'm rolling. I capture it. And I've got Ron doing something pretty cool and crazy for a vlog, right? Anyway, so I'm excited about this. It's on the way. The credit card has officially been dinged today. And I'll keep you posted. So normally we jump into three pro tips, one from each of us on each and every podcast to give something back to our listeners, things we've experienced, hacks that we've discovered in the field, but we're not going to do that this week. Why, Mark? People want to know. <laughs> Why, because, Mark? Well, thank you. Thank you. Because this week we are doing a pro tip bonanza. We are doing the whole show with tips. Michael, Ron, and I are going to offer up 15 wildlife photography hacks on today's show. We have prepared five each. So get comfortable. And be ready to jot some down some notes, as no doubt there will be something in here for everyone. But before we roll on with that, we are going to stick with the other segment that we do every week and feature the question of the week. This one came on a direct message on our Wild and Exposed Instagram feed from a young man named Will Rogers, who is an undergrad at Montana State University. And he's just seemingly got into photography, but especially has just launched his Instagram page. I noticed that, I, if I believe his first post was at the beginning of this year, and he's had questions he's directed toward Ron previously. So the question he sent that we'll address today is actually a couple of parts to it, but it's worth discussing. So well, I want to point out, too, out of curiosity, you can find his work on Will Rogers Photography. That's his, his tag on uh, his Instagram page, his feed. Here's the question. He was wondering where we all stand on the use of ISO. He commonly finds himself underexposing images and trying to bring up the shadows and blacks in post-process only to achieve a grainy subject. Now, I want to point out he shared with me that he's shooting a Nikon D810. Would you recommend 
barring adjustments to aperture and shutter, using higher ISOs in camera to avoid noise versus using lower ISOs and sacrificing quality on post-process. So I don't, I can, I don't, one of you guys want to jump in. My, my response to this is, you know, ISO is something we always have to pay attention to in the field. And I know I am way more conservative than most photographers from what I hear in just our general conversations. But I do not sacrifice ISO and do not ever, well, unless I just want to document an image, I'll bump it up to whatever crazy thing. I could go 5,000, 10,000 if I just, but I'm never going to do anything with that photo. It's just something I wanted to have a visual of. And that happens like once a year. I cap it, honestly, and, and, and some people will be shocked. I cap it at 1,600. I don't go above 1,600 for images that I plan to use in my business and to promote for publishing. And at 1,600, even on the cutting-edge cameras that I have, I can see the difference between 800 and 1,600 ISO. So I shoot, um, I would say, 80% of my content at 800 ISO, and I will drop it lower whenever there's an opportunity. If it's nice, strong light, that's not harsh, obviously, but nice, strong light, I'll drop it to 400 to 200. But I'd say, on average, my camera is set at 800 ISO, and when it gets a bit slow, I, you know, my, my practice is, instead of bumping up my ISO, I hold my camera so still, and I take 15 in hopes that three of those are sharp at a 60th of a second at 500 millimeters at f5.6. And you know what? Two of them are. So it works. It's just a matter of having the opportunity to burst off of a bunch of them that way. I don't have any problem bumping up to 1,000 ISO, and those are definitely still very strong marketable images, images that I really don't believe compromise the quality. So I am not personally willing to go higher on ISO. And actually, the second part of his question, he wants to know if we find it more worthwhile to shoot on an ISO auto or ISO manual. Most of the time, he shoots on manual, but when the light changes or subjects move, he often cannot change his ISO quick enough. And again, I, I know of people who do, but my ISO is never on auto. It's always 100% of the time on manual because that's one of the things that I need to control for image quality. And yes, it has to be part of our mental training to make that adjustment, just like depth of field is and watching our shutter speed. You know, and there are times if it gets too dark, even in modern times, which is absurd compared to what we had to do with slide film back in the day at 50 ISO. You know, if it gets too dark, well, then shut it down and just sit back and enjoy the scene. But yeah, I always manual ISO. My go to is 800 and 1000. And if I have to, 16. And at those ISOs, I don't personally see any issues with the shadows. Um, or detail being lost in the blacks. And you can obviously bracket and expose. And what we can do flexibility with shooting in raw images, which I assume will is, what you can do in post-production with raw images to recover shadows in black areas is uh, very impressive now nowadays as well. And the one thing I haven't played with, or, and that at some point, you know, I guess the next time we're together, if, if I don't, splurge and buy the money buy one sooner is the mirrorless cameras where the reputation so far is that they do hold the blacks better with those sensors so mm -hmm. anyway that's that's my answer do you guys have anything to add for will on today's question of the week i just have a couple a couple things i guess please do 
first thing that I would say is, you know, to answer the question truthfully, it depends on the camera that you're using. Uh, because some cameras handle ISO better than others. If you're using a, you know, a prosumer um, camera, it's got a prosumer sensor in it, and it may not handle ISO as well as some of the higher end cameras. With, and the you know the other thing is depends on the 810 is a higher megapixel sensor, so you're cramming more megapixels into the same size sensor as say the the D800 or the 5D Mark II. And so you are going to get a little bit more noise with those higher megapixel sensors typically. As far as I'm in full agreement on the auto ISO, you want to try to get to the point where you've got your camera off of auto everything because you're, you're smarter than your camera is. You know what the exposure that you want, you know how you want to present that, uh, that image. So you make the decisions on ISO on shutter speed and on aperture don't let your camera do it for you. Otherwise, you know, you're going to end up with, you're going to end up with images at 12,600, 12,800 ISO, and you don't want that. So I would say those are the two things. The other thing on doing it in post-processing, it also depends on your post-processing program because all of those aren't created equally as well. I, I have been, I had heard that, the uh, D850 handled handled noise a lot better than some of the other cameras that I've used in the past, and I have I've found it to be fairly equal unless if I use the Nikon software for their noise reduction, it makes probably a full stop worth of difference on ISO if I'm if I'm taking noise out of an image, and then I can round trip it back into Lightroom or or Photoshop, whatever, wherever I'm working on that image. Um, Lightroom doesn't typically do as good a job as Photoshop does. And then there's some, there's lots of other software out there right now. And so it just, it depends on the software you use. And I think the most important thing for me is to get the exposure right in camera. And if that means I slow the shutter speed down a little bit or wait for that animal to hold still instead of trying to get that motion or, you know, switch gears and go to motion blur. If you do have, you know, that kind of horizontal movement, try to do something a little bit different. But I, I agree. I don't push it too much. I probably push it a little bit more than you do. I'm comfortable at, you know, 2,500. So it's only two thirds of a stop. It's not much difference at all. So Mark's making faces. Those of you that can't see. <laughs> I'm just smiling because I'm a happy guy. <laughs> but I agree. I don't. I don't push it very far with with wildlife images at all oh mike i guess you probably have a different perspective with video or maybe it's similar so i just want to interject and, and say that i've i've heard pros say they're happy up to five thousand. i just don't see it yeah. when i zoom into 100 percent, and you know if i'm looking at my at my 5k imac at 100 percent, and i'm shooting at five thousand iso it's like no yeah, I'm not. I'm not sending that out, and I. I really like the fact you know nowadays we have so many potential markets. I, I work in stock and publishing, but I still uh, am always thrilled when somebody orders a big metal print. I want every image I put out there to work for different applications. I don't want to have to say, oh well, yeah, you can publish this a half a page in a magazine, but you can't blow it up to three feet by four feet on a metal print. You know, with the sensors yeah. we're shooting with nowadays, to me, there's no excuse. Every file 
should be good enough to handle any of these applications. And that's, I don't want to draw the line because I don't want to ever have to be the guy to say no to a potential client. So. I think on the ISO thing, you know, in some of these cameras, you can set a limit if you run auto and maybe that's best for him. Right. So if he's running, if he wants to stay on a certain shutter speed and a certain aperture, you go to auto, but then set your limit of your ISO to never go above 1200 or 1280 or whatever it is. And then let the, let that happen, do some shooting, shoot for a month or two, but then start paying attention to where it's working best. And then slowly wean yourself off the auto. And that would alleviate that problem of, you know, not being able to change that ISO fast enough. So yeah, mm -hmm. I don't think you want to go auto if you're going to just let it run the range. Cause all of a sudden you're going to be at 50,000 ISO and, You'll never right. use that image for anything. I would do something like that. And yeah, in video, it's a whole different, whole different ball game. Very similar in how it works, but these cameras, like you said earlier, each camera is different. So different sensors do different things. And like on the video cam, one of the video cameras I use, it's 800 is the native ISO. So you want to try to stay at 800. Whereas with my DSLRs, I want to be, I'll shoot at a hundred if I can. I'm always going to pick a hundred if there's enough light to do it, mm -hmm. but I'm comfortable on my cameras up to, I think 2,500 is, I'm pretty comfortable up to you with the Canon stuff. <clears throat> yeah. And I haven't tried that Sony yet to know, you know, I keep hearing things, sure. but I've not shot a still image with that camera yet. It's all video and the video looks great, but that's I'm, a Sony AR seven, a seven R three, I think is what it is. Seven R three. Or I'll just run the ISO and I'm shooting video up to, I've never had to go above 800 on the stuff that I'm shooting. So I, we'll see, I, as things go forward, I'll keep trying. I, I can't really use it for wildlife because I only bought one lens with it so far. So I think it's a matter of getting a bigger lens that will work for wildlife and then just trying it. I'm excited to try it. I keep thinking, sure. oh, should I just go down and shoot some flying ducks or something that is pretty fun to do in the winter time but i've not found the time yet but i would say just put that auto iso on but set a limit i would assume that a10 does that i don't know some cameras do and some cameras don't so if you can set a limit on the auto then i would do that and just go forward you know a lot of these prosumer or pro bodies do have an iso button so and they have more than one display and i if i i have an 810 so if I remember correctly, it has a button. It's just a matter of using your right thumb and dialing that ISO quickly. And not only do you have to, you can look through the viewfinder and see it, I, but it's on the bottom of the camera on the little LCD there, mm -hmm. and that's rolling it too. So it really doesn't take long to m manually master it and to watch it and control it yourself. Right. So it's not like you have to dive into a menu. It's just a hot button on the camera, roll the thing. And, and it usually, the other thing is ISO is not something I jump around a lot with. Right. If it's an overcast day and I end up in the hardwoods or in somewhere, then it's going to be set at what I need. And the light doesn't usually change that much. And then if I leave the shelter of the forest and all of a sudden I'm out in an open area and it's brighter and I can lower my ISO. Well, I know as I walk out, say, oh, this is stronger. And I make the adjustment. And, and I, mm -hmm. with experience, that comes. Right. I mean, that's just yeah. and you of, can customize most of these bodies that the, the Canon body was was nice because you could set the set button in the back in the in the middle of the wheel set the set button if i held that down and then rotated the uh 
shutter wheel in the front, I was just an ISO. And you can you can customize those buttons, so you could probably do that on the 810 as well. I know you can on the 850, and then you don't have to be looking for it. You know exactly where it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there it's it's user friendly. At least the camera bodies I've had, as far as manually controlling the ISO compared mm-hmm. to other components, you know, depth of field, um, ISO, and shutter are all pretty well at our fingertips. And and that's going to be something I touch on in a little bit on today's podcast. So I want to thank Will for the question of the week. And we want to encourage all our listeners to send in any questions that you may have, no matter whether you're a beginner or an expert. And we will do our best to answer all of them, and we'll feature one on each podcast as the question of the week. Okay, so buckle in. Here we go. We're going to do our roundtable 15 wildlife photography hacks or tips, whatever you want to call it, to get you in the game. All right, I'll start off. My first one is think when you're when you're looking at a picture. This is something that happens to me all the time. There are various markets that I have to create imagery for. So think of the power of direct eye contact with your wildlife subject. The question is, do you want it? Or is it better not to have the animal looking directly into the lens? From my experience, both are winning scenarios, but it depends on your target market and the personal bias of your print buyer or editor. Everybody has their preferences, and you get to know that. And you can look historically, you know, if there's a publication. In my world, I look at a publication and and see what they've done in the past. And cover images are something that I go after because it's the largest sale monetarily for the publication. You know, and is every animal looking directly at off into the lens, off the cover, or is always looking off in the distance or doing something behavioral that has nothing to do with being distracted potentially by the photographer. Those trends are obvious if you look on the back issues of any of these publications or whatever the market is that you're going for. Maybe it's um, in a gallery and what people like there. You can visit the gallery and see. To me, it's ideal if you have time to capture both. That's my objective. So I purposely try to shoot both and to cover my bases and do both in post-production to cover my markets. Now, direct eye contact is more intense as it immediately creates a relationship with the viewer, right? When you pick up or look at an image, whether it's on a wall or in a magazine or in a calendar or online, and if that bear is looking straight into the lens, you immediately go to its eyes. Your eyes meet its eyes and that is something that a lot of people love it's very engaging it's very dramatic Uh, at the same time there's also a large audience who prefers it differently so when when the subject isn't focused on the viewer there's a more relaxed and natural feel to the image and that style of photography allows the viewer to enter the scene or landscape at their own pace right there's nothing going on of course your eye will go to the animal and then take in the landscape, but it's not nearly as intense as with the animal locking eyes with the viewer at the beginning. So, again, I have editors that I know over history prefer one or the other, and it's just something to think about when you're out filming in the field. If you have the opportunity, I recommend trying to get both images of the animal looking at the lens alert, as well as doing its own behavior and uh, with its eyes off. Do you guys have any comments on that? That's tip number one for me to think about while shooting. No, I think no. it's perfect. And I do the same thing. You try to get it all right. Sometimes it's hard. So if you're not going to alter 
the animal's behavior at all. It's a total a luck right. thing if that animal's going to look at you. You know, some of the animals right. we photograph are so used to people, it's hard to get them to look at you. So you're really just at the mercy of whatever they're they're up to. You know, hopefully there's something behind you that gets their attention, a little bird or a squirrel or something like that. So you just got to be on the lookout and just constantly know your surroundings. And if you can get it, it is by for covers. I think that's the most striking. That's what they want. They generally don't want an image looking off. It's hard to get it. It's, you know, there are lots of situations. We had that monster giant bull moose in Alaska this year that went past our position and never stopped its stride, Mm -hmm. never looked at my camera. I never got shot. He was huge. He had these heavy wide antlers. And if he turned and faced directly at me with light in his eye, that would have been one of the shots of the day, one of the highlight reels that I was hoping to get out of it. He never did. I didn't do anything to stop his behavior or change his behavior or stop his stride. I thought it would happen. We had a hundred yards that it could have happened in and he never did. He never looked at us and he walked right past. There was some great profile, landscape, environmental portraits, but never got that intense dialed in eye contact. So you're right. I mean, it is hard to get. It's just something I suggest people be aware of because it's two very different styles of presentation of a wildlife image. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So one thing that people ask me all the time is how do you separate that animal from the background? And I think there's two things that you have to have to make that happen. You want to be shooting a bigger telephoto, so a 300, a 400, a 500, and you want to shoot it like 5.6 or below. If you do that and you put the animal in focus with the, say, let's just say it's a 400, that background is going to fall off and pretty much be a blur. So if you have sticks in the background or all this distracting stuff, and if it's far enough behind the animals, I don't know, 10 feet or more, everything's just going to fall off and just be a great big blur back there. You're not even going to really know. I mean, you might see some colors. If it's autumn, you might see the yellow and that color, the color stuff, but you're not going to see any detail. And what happens is that animal just pops right off the page, right? Just keep in mind that when you're shooting wildlife, you want to separate it and you want to put all that emphasis right on that animal. You want to be at 5.6 or F4 or 2.8. You go to 2.8, then you start running into problems of focus on the animal because you better be dead on or else the animal's going to be out of focus just by an inch or two. And it's the other thing, if the eyes that you were talking about earlier, if they're not in tack sharp focus, that's not going to work either. Like if, you, if you're shooting a 2.8 and you have the nose in focus, but then the eyes are oh, kind yeah. of blurry, you don't want that either. Oh, like so. Trash bin, trash bin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah so you yeah. just automatically so keep that in mind i mean that's why i try to stay at five six if i'm shooting with the 400 at five six with some separation between the animal's back and or behind the animal to 10 feet you're going to get it every time sure. it's going to be awesome and that in my experience has always been a cover image right that's what mm-hmm. most people are going to pull from the cover so if you're shooting for publications If they're going to put a title on it or if they're going to put text down the side or whatever, they're going to call out the different articles in that magazine. They need to have that clean stuff. It can't be competing with other stuff in the image. So just keep that in mind. That's just one of those things that I just... for fine art. It's, you know, there's a market for that in all these applications. You know, a little great on a big metal to have that separation, that shallow depth of field. People like that as well as the environmental portraits, right? You want to... You want to be a versatile photographer. You have to have this toolbox of compositions and create a portfolio. And yeah, that's a great tip. You know, with a big telephoto, 
you know, make sure your depth of field's low and zoom in as much as you can, you know, while making the composition work to soften that background, clean it up. And you guys are using the two to 500 with the Nikon. You get that same response or you get that same image as I get using a F4 400. It doesn't matter what lens you have. As long as you can get down to, you start getting to like F8 and then you just start getting too much stuff in focus along the, along mm-hmm. the line there. So just five, six or below and, and you might end up with something that's super cool. That's a beginner tip for sure, but that's something for beginners just to pay attention to if you're using big glass. Yeah. And the other thing that will facilitate that is if they find a subject with even greater distance to the background. So right. when we were doing the, the sharp tail lek in Wyoming last year, that was so much fun. Check that podcast out. I was we were able to get really low on the birds and they were on the crest of a hill where the next hill was like a mile away, it seemed. So it was automatically very clean. So we could, in that situation, you could bump it up to F8 if the light permitted to get enough of the birds in focus doing their standoffs, foot stomping with one another with their wings out, but still have a clean background because it was so far away, not 10 feet, but like a mile. So there are ways to play with that depending on your angle and position as well to increase that functionality with a higher F-stop if, you, if you're handcuffed that way and only have a 5.6 like we do. Right. Cool. Ron, what's your, what's your first of the five? Uh, my first one is light and the, the type of light that you have, whether it's, you know, coming in over the shoulder, which is probably my favorite, depending on the time of day, backlit, side lit, whatever the light is. And, and, you know, most of the time with wildlife, you, you don't really always have a choice as to where you put yourself because any movement you could you could bump the animal and then you've got no opportunity at all so learn to work with those different styles of light you know one example mike and i were in alaska a couple summers ago and we went out early morning and everybody was just kind of riding along there was a there was a sow with yearling cubs and all of a sudden both mike and i cameras came up and we were shooting when everybody else was sitting still because she was perfectly rim lit i mean the the light was coming in from the side but all those guard hairs just lit her up so you you gotta be able to see that and know that you know this is one of those times i can make an adjustment instead of having the whole animal lit or exposed properly i know i'm going to get those guard hairs so you almost want to underexpose the image and so you make that rim light kind of stand out you covering your ears Ray well, you're you're leading into my number two. My number two. That's okay. I'll get there. I'll get there. No worries. It, I, I like so, something I I, I want to add, and I, but keep going. I, it was working from a blind. You have to think about that. I you know yeah. a lot of my whitetail stuff. I'm in a blind that not only do I do this pop up blind, which there are so many good models nowadays that are so easy to backpack in and pop up, but you brush it in with stuff and hide it. But you have to plan that light ahead of time, unless it's an overcast day. But if you're getting it, you want a sunrise and at the edge of the bush, I mean, and there are times where you might want to position the blind in another part of the transition zone between the habitats along this fringe to get side lighting. But, you know, all that's yeah. planning. So exactly. light is paramount to quality work. Yeah. And, you know, be ready for the light to dictate. If light changes, you know, let it dictate what you're going to do. We had in uh, Colorado this fall, 
we had some good opportunities with some cloudy days. We could pretty much go wherever we wanted and have the same shot. If you do get dark clouds and you still have that motion, you still have that, let's say, rut activity going on, you know, again, I touched on it earlier when we were talking about ISO, drop your shutter speed and work on some panning shots. Just use the motion. But learning how to adjust for the available light and that's going to come with practice. It's going to come with looking at other people's images and figure out how to work that exposure triangle, the ISO, the shutter speed, and the aperture in your camera to take advantage of every light application. But if we bring that back down to the base level, I think mm -hmm. if you're a beginning photographer and you're going to go out and shoot something, the number one thing you want to do to start, to start building this portfolio of work is always make sure you have the sun to your back. There's so many pictures yeah. I see on Instagram where it's, it's like not lit up properly. It could be if the person was moved over a little bit or completely on the other side. And I realize sometimes it can't happen, but that comes with that prediction, right? Kind of what you mm -hmm. were saying, Mark, with where you set up your blind. If you're in a blind, you're stuck. You, you better have done your homework and get it in the right spot. If you're out mobile, I'm always looking, you know, that's, I think we all just kind of do it subconsciously. You, you, if an animal's moving a certain way, it's best not to even shoot. If the light's not right, you better spend your time getting in the right position. And maybe it's hiking ahead a half a mile and hopefully that animal just keeps coming and you've got the light right. But just to bring it down to the base level, I mean, I think what you're talking about, Ron, is that's as you're into it and you start understanding a lot of these exposures and stuff, you can make use of those other situations. It's just sure you got to have a pretty good handle on, okay, how can I make this work if it's not perfect or if you don't have the opportunity to move around like you should? Yep, absolutely. It, yeah, over the shoulders, best, best case scenario, always. With lights coming from behind you and shining on the subject ahead of you. Mm -hmm. Yep. Just light on your back and you're good. Just keep that as your base. Mm -hmm. And wind in your face. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. But, you know, for any skittish wildlife, for it's very important to play the wind and be aware of that. You know, I end up moving a blind as often for wind or breeze conditions turning on me than, than lighting, probably more often. So you led me perfectly into my number two. Thank you, Ron. My number two is who loves silhouettes? And I'm talking about silhouettes with a wild animal in them. So when shooting silhouettes, they're one of, they're one of the things that can help diversify a portfolio, right? So if 80% of your work has that idealistic light coming from over your shoulder and shining on your subject, but then you have some silhouettes, it just used to be, okay, I'm going to take a step back, a big step back here. When I sent slides out, there was a page of 20 slides. <laughs> There was a scientific method in my mind at the presentation of that page, always. All the animals in the perimeter looked in. The strongest images were up in the corners and then some strong in the middle, but everything directed in. But it has to they have to play off one another. The images, they can't all be golden. They can't all be blue. They have to be a variety of content and color and composition. And it's the same with, you know, so you're proposing a photo essay or you're doing a book, uh, a calendar. You want to have that diversity. So silhouettes are right up there. It's a rare opportunity. And when it happens, you have to do it. And this takes me back to quickly tell a story 
of two very good friends who I won't mention because of how this story goes. And they're very talented photographers, but it was such a memorable morning. I was in the northern Rockies, peak of the elk rut. It was dark. I had picked up a coffee. I had met a couple of other photographer friends at the coffee shop in town. It's still dark, and I left. I'm like, where are you going? I said, silhouettes. That's all I said, silhouettes. It was, it was that kind of morning. There was a red sky. And I got to the place. Uh, it was a drive and then a, a fairly lengthy hike to where this harem was with this tremendous bull the day before. He was bugling in the dark. I knew he was in there. So I start. It was a big meadow. I wasn't going in somewhere. But I was crossing the meadow to where he was uh, to get within photo uh, range. And at the beginning of the meadow were two of my good friends. And they're talking there. And, and I walk right past them. And they're like, oh, wait, Mark, where are you going? Silhouettes. That's all I said. I didn't even look to see what they'd do because the timing, it was like literally you got five minutes for this to work. That's it for that morning. And I just kept walking calmly to get to a spot and they followed me and the bull went up on this ridge right about a minute after I got there. And it was hilarious because I started shooting and I looked to my left over my shoulder and to my right and these guys are scrambling and getting their cameras up, and they both killed it too. They had it was a great opportunity to get silhouette of this magnificent bull on the ridge line, with or without trees, depending if you shuffled one way or the other a few feet, and this red red sky. Now, why silhouettes is a hack? You have to know how to do it. You have to underexpose for richer detail and colors. If you just shoot at what the camera says, it is blah. Doesn't work. So. Obviously, shooting raw, underexposed. The trouble is you've got to experiment with these digital DSLRs. And back in the slide, they forget about it. You had to bracket like a madman to make it work. But even underexposed as much as a couple of full stops. And I just do it. I'll just, when that action's happening, I'll do half stop, full stop, stop and a half, two stops, repeat, and just hammer them off. The one thing I'm obviously looking forward to trying someday on these mirrorless cameras is this whole crazy subject of what you see is what you get when you look at the electronic <laughs> viewfinder. This is one of those scenarios when shooting a silhouette would be awesome because there'd be no guesswork. You just sh slow your shutter down and darken, darken, darken until that point where the image becomes very moody and very rich and, and dramatic. And then you would hit the shutter on the mirrorless camera but on their normal dslrs which is what i what i currently use it's a matter of knowing you have to underexpose starting there and then bracketing like mad just to nail it right and it's interesting you put them up in post afterwards and look at the difference over the stops it's impressive what you can the variance you'll get in a silhouette depending on the how you underexpose it well and depending on what your background is for the silhouette I just expose off the background, right? So if I want that animal to go completely dark, so I have a similar similar spot, or it's with elk, I guess that's what makes it similar, is there's a place that I go shoot elk, and I know if the elk are right in this particular area, chances are really good that I'm going to get a silhouette. And so for years, I would just go to that spot every morning and just see if the elk were even close. And if they were, I was banking, I was going to spend that whole morning and hope that the animal appeared in that particular spot so you could get that silhouette and I would just meter off the sky and generally you would get these really awesome sunrises so you get this really cool orangey whatever whatever's going on with the sunrise meter off of that and then you know your animal's going to go totally black the cool thing that happened to me with that with with the silhouette images is I did that for 
I don't know, three or four years where I had just a whole selection of silhouettes. <clears throat> and one of the guys that I submit images to, he, he kind of knew of that work. And it came time for Colorado to create a new license plate uh, for an outdoors kind of, I don't even know, it's a conservation license plate. And then he ended up knowing that I had those. He took all those silhouettes and those are the images that appear on that license plate because they were just looking for that specific, they didn't want to identify any particular animal, they just wanted a silhouette, and it stands out well on a license plate and looks great. So there's all kinds of uses, like you say, but you just got to be in the spot and then just know how to meter to get it. Yeah, yeah. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's To me, I've, I've had elk do it maybe four or five, maybe once a year if I get lucky. And, you know, sometimes the sky's blue, sometimes it's red, sometimes it's super moody with the sun, but it's such a strikingly dramatic image that it you know is something i love to add to my portfolio but know very well to underexpose mike what do you got throw number two curveball let's let's have it slide All right it. so i had ball. another one in here that is correlate your action with your shutter speed so if you know you're going to be out there shooting a lot of action just your first you just need to know that get that shutter speed up and for me i'm always at least a 500 or above and if it's really fast stuff, you know, like what's a good example? Like if you're shooting hummingbirds, you're going to really go up a lot higher than that, which means you got to have a lot of light, right? So depending on what I'm shooting or if I've got a bunch of, uh, I don't know, we keep going back to elk, but I know this happens a lot. So if you've got a herd bull that's out there running off other bulls and it's just constant action, but you're early, early in the morning and you're, fine if you're shooting at a 60th that's not going to get your you know really sharp images so just always pay attention to your shutter speed depending on what that action is if you got an animal just standing there you can get away with the 60th no problem but if you don't you just make keep sure keep an eye on that yeah just keep yeah, an eye keep on it that. up because there's action. a lot of people yeah. that get really bummed out after they've had this really awesome encounter and if you look mm -hmm. at the back of the camera a lot of times if you just take a quick look it'll look sharp at the back of the camera if you don't zoom in and really identify what's yeah. going on and you think oh great i got it and then you get back to your computer or get back to your office or whatever and you look at those images and you get kind of bummed out because you had this awesome opportunity but it's just that quick little okay i got a lot of action going on i'm gonna <coughs> run up my shutter speed and then i just have to make whatever other adjustments to make sure that that shutter speed stays there yeah. And it happens to everybody. I mean, there are times where you're handcuffed and you just don't get the action. But, yeah, you definitely want to pay attention to it. And as you mentioned, when you're looking at it, to actually do the test, you know, make sure you look at it at 100%. Magnify into 100% on your screen. And there's some recovery that can be done. You know, there's some sharpening that can help, you know, to, I'd say, probably a 15 to 20% improvement from what I do anyway with Photoshop. But, um you know, don't trust it at 50. If it looks good, it's got to be better than that. So, but yes, be aware of that. That's very important. High shutter speed. The higher you can get in good light, the better, you know, odds are for anything action. Yeah, it kind of goes back to what you said, Ron, and maybe you just want to expand on it. But that whole, if you can't do it, then maybe you just need to try to do those follow, you know, where you blur everything right. except for the animal. Right. But that's, that's a... It's rolling the dice. It's like blowing at the craps table on the dice. Not, the, yeah. And that's you know you were talking about shooting fifteen and hope three of them. If you're doing pan blurs, if you want to get one in focus, I would shoot. I would go for a hundred and hope you get one or two. Right. Because it right. it is an exact science, and it's 
it's not something that's easily mastered. It's easily screwed up, as a matter of fact. <laughs> but when one is done right, it's a pretty awesome. Oh, yeah. It can be phenomenal. I think you got one. If if you guys look back in the show notes of the uh, Colorado Rockies when we shot elk, look back in the show notes of that podcast, Mike got a uh, pan blur of a doe mule deer that was she was running in front of the coyotes running away from the coyotes and kind of jumped over some some brush and mike got a nice pan blur of her yeah quite by accident i was just like ah quick shoot <laughs> shoot and move shoot and move whatever whatever it what makes it exciting right that's wildlife photography that's right unpredictable make the best of it all right ron what's your next one so my next one is just to practice and wildlife photographers sometimes you get bummed out if you're not you know if depending on the location that you're living in the wildlife that are available uh, some people get bummed out because there's nothing to nothing to shoot go to a dog park for crying out loud go down to a junior high football game or track meet practice these different techniques that it doesn't matter whether you're shooting people or wildlife or pets but get out and practice in the in the summertime when people want to learn they ask me how to shoot birds in flight the first thing i tell them is go to the city dump or go to a city park where there's a lot of birds around you got nothing but seagulls but it's going to allow you to practice everything you're you know shooting the the birds in flight your exposure because your exposure is going to be different when they're against the ground and when they're against a, a straight blue sky. So learn how to expose properly, learn how to follow those birds in the air. Seagulls fly goofy. They're, there's a lot of motion. So learn to track that motion as it happens. Um, and then when you're shooting uh, waterfowl, say where they fly more in a straight line, it's gonna be a lot easier than it was trying to shoot the seagull. But go out find a subject you know you guys we were texting back and forth the other morning and i was i was doing exactly that my son got his first paid gig he was shooting a uh, a ro photograph in a rodeo and so i just went across to the town park and photographed geese on the river and geese flying in every once in a while bald eagle would fly over check out the geese change gears shot up into the end of the sky and change my exposure get the bald eagle in flight it's None of them are images that I'm probably going to do anything with. In fact, that card's already been formatted and those are gone. <laughs> but you get out, you keep yourself in practice, you keep all those things tracking in your mind as you're shooting those different scenarios. So get out. Don't be afraid to get out and practice on something that's not necessarily wildlife. It will help you when you get in the field and things start to become second nature. I like that one. And I said the same thing earlier when I was talking about that Sony, right? I said, yeah, if I'm going to exactly. play with it, I need to go down to the local park and shoot some ducks that are just, yep. you know, people always show up with their popcorn and they throw the popcorn out. And what do those ducks do? They fly out of the water, go get the popcorn, and then they fly back. So that gives you that opportunity to, to follow. And, and sometimes you do end up with, with something really spectacular. I've been seeing a lot of images by Jason Loftus yeah. on, uh, instagram where he's got a lot of mallards and if you get a mallard in flight Crazy and the lights just right, images. it's yep. really beautiful so you might get something out of it mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and the success about wildlife photography, you know, often relies on being fast, right? Focused on the subject and fast. I lose or miss, I miss far more than I actually capture for some of the most exciting situations. But once in a while, you know, due to the familiarity with gear that we use, our kit, it happens, it works. And, you know, the better prepared we are, the more often. And that's the thrill of being wildlife and nature photographers is that fast response. You know, we need to be ready and, and focused. That was actually going to be my next one, but I'm going to audible here. Um, well, I was else. just going to give you this awesome segue because I was looking at your list. <laughs> and number three says, be fast. I know it is. It was be fast, but I, I have I have a backup one. Oh, I, I did. I did look at I look at what you guys sent earlier today. And I just want to make sure we're presenting different things out. But, you know, it oh, it's there's some difference to what my original number three was but it overlaps a bit with practice in a sense you know practice gives that familiarity with our gear so that we can be faster and the faster we are the more successful we're going to be with wildlife photography and obviously the equipment we use we keep watching that for new gear that speeds up our process and that's where the new osmo pocket you know to whip it out of our pocket and in three seconds be filming something that's happening in front of us that's, that's very important to have that speed to do that. And so Ron's last hack or tip was awesome in that you do have to practice because it's, it burns when you miss the opportunities. And it's guaranteed to happen for the rest of our lives. We will miss opportunities. But the more practiced we are and the faster and familiar we are, the faster we are and the more familiar with our gear that we are, the more success we'll have in those fleeting interactions for super cool action photography. So... My next hack is about downloading cards because this happens to me. I don't know how many people it happens to. I don't, anyway, I'm careful, but I download my memory cards at the end of the shoot or at the end of the day and I back them up twice because why not? You know, there's some, hopefully some precious imagery on there that needs to be processed and the world needs to see it, I hope. And so I want it backed up on more than one hard drive. These hard drives are 110 bucks. You know, they could fail. They have moving parts. So I back up the card. I download it, back it up two more times for redundancy. And then here's the tip. Format it right then. The card's been downloaded, backed up twice. You have three copies of it. Format it then. Put it back in your camera if it's your active card or back in your card carrying case so that it's clear. Because one thing that bugs me is I'll get in the field, I'll shoot a card, I'll reach for another one, put it in my camera, and like, oh, yeah, these are September's Doll Sheep. Yeah, I, I think I, yeah, I downloaded Doll Sheep. Did I download all of them? Are there any on this card? I think I did. It's like, you know what? I, that, was a, that was a hard day. I did a big hike, and these are pretty epic images. I can't risk it. So then I stick it back in my case, and I pull out another card. Oh, look. Oh, we've got Caribou from Newfoundland. Oh, I, I, I think I downloaded them. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I've learned that if I format my cards as soon as I have downloaded them and, and knowingly back them up twice, then I'm ready to go. There's no second guessing in the field. I'm not losing any opportunity because I'm looking at the back of my camera at old images trying to decide whether I can erase them for good off the card or not. That's my next tip. Short and sweet. That's a good one. I think um, along good. those same lines, and I didn't have it down, but what I do when I'm in the field and uh, you say you fill up a card and then you're just putting another card in. And a lot of times people 
will throw a card in their pocket or whatever. I've gotten in the habit of throwing it in a pouch, a, a pouch that's for card, and they make hard cases or pouches, whatever you use. I always put it in. If it's used, I put it in backwards. Same. I just flip yeah. it. Because I so got it, you know, if you're in a hurry, you don't want to grab a card, slam it in there, and because it speaks to being fast, right? You don't want to throw in a card that, oh, I just, uh, you know, I, I just Never. missed yeah. that. I just missed that Wolverine jumping over the the muskox. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> that would suck. Not gonna lie. <laughs> I don't know who I got that from back in the day when memory cards were new. It might have been you, man. But yeah, it's it's that's a great it's a great tip to add on. Yeah, flip it so you're looking at the back of the card, not the front when it's already full. Full. I do that all the time though with that. I do it with hard drives. So I was on an assignment last week and I shot all this stuff on all these drives, and I just was like, ah, did I put that on a drive? Mm, I don't know. So what I ended up doing is then I'll have 14 copies. Because it's like, oh, no, I'm going to dump that again. Just just to be safe, I'm going to go ahead and put it on the hard drive. So I've got, I'm wasting a lot of money just on hard drive space because I'm an idiot. So I think it's just being, being proactive, being just diligent about it, and you just make it a routine. It's not, it's not much, it's very important when we do our trips. But when you're on an assignment on a corporate shoot, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's, upfront money paying gig you cannot risk having images lost so of course you're going to be uber careful with that you know if, if we reformat a card that we haven't backed up it's on us on a wildlife trip and we have to live with that and swallow that hard pill but on a on a stock on an assignment sorry corporate assignment that no way so yeah, yeah i totally get where you're you have to be dialed in and very careful with that but you know it is important for these trips and these adventures and these you know just to have a routine Follow the routine for efficiency. Let me add one more little thing to that. Do it. And maybe we've talked about this before, so let's just keep it short. But a lot of times when you're backing it up, so if you're putting it on OneDrive, and I don't know, it depends on everybody's process. Do you put it on OneDrive and then copy that drive to the other drive and then copy that to the other drive and then go to the next card and then do the whole process? Or do you dump all your cards and then copy it to the other hard drive? I, what the problem I run into is, did I copy everything over, or does it just do I now just don't have one? So I've got a program called ChronoSync, and what it does for me is it syncs up all my drives. So after I make one drive, I'll copy it over, but then I'll run this little ChronoSync, and it analyzes every image. It makes sure that those two hard drives are identical, and that's just another little peace of mind. Well, smart. You know, I'll 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 jump in again, just one more time in the <laughs> ring here. I'm jump I'm jumping in. It's it's a good point because there's that question, and I'll do that too, where I'll have these folders on these different drives, external hard drives plugged in, and what I'll do, I'm on Mac, and you can do this on PC just as easily, but I'll do the get info. I'll, I'll right click on that folder, so I've got the two folders. I'll click on it, get info, which will show me. Two things. It'll show me the amount of memory occupied in that folder and the number of files. So if there are, you know, 5,210 images from that afternoon with black bears, or actually that would be many afternoons for that many, um, then I can see the same number on the other folder and, and be confident that everything's there. Yeah. At least I know the numbers match. But your Chronos idea would be slick, or the program for sure. 
without that, I just do the get info and compare them and make sure everything copied over. Yep. Yeah. Just, you just gotta have a, a process and stick to it and don't cheat. And you know, you keep refining it. We all do. And that's where, mm -hmm. you know, we're living in this world. So any information we can share with our listeners, we hope that some of it's useful that way. Ideally, a lot of it is. What have you got next, Michael? So this is a completely just like totally changed from processing to more about aesthetics of an image. And I just put up a picture on Instagram the other day and some somebody commented on it and said, wow, look at the leading lines and everything just kind of works on this image. And if you have an opportunity to use a leading line in an image, you always want to do that. If you can position yourself to to draw your attention to whatever you're filming or photographing, that's always going to be a huge plus. In the situation of the image that I put up, it was a, a moose that was standing there and there happened to be mountain ranges in the back where these lines just kind of all intersected about where that moose was at. So it just kind of drew you right into the image. So if you get in that, you can do it with a log, you can do it with a lake, you can do it with a mountain, you can do it with so many different things. And it's just something to pay attention to when you're out there. Don't settle for just a portrait shot of an animal because that really doesn't fly these days, right? Especially if you're in the publishing world, you better have a several elements about an image that really make it stand off the page. So one way to do that is to use the leading lines and just pay attention to it. It's hard. You know, you never know when it's going to happen. And you don't always need it. You don't need it in every image, but you can use a trail. You can use a lot. I've, I've used all kinds of stuff. And sometimes it's a happy accident too, right? Where you're just like, oh, look at that image. It just draws my attention in. But I pay attention to that a lot when I'm out there shooting. That's something to train your eye for that a lot of people don't think about. I mean, I'll be, I'll be honest. I don't look for that as much as I should. Um, my highest selling image, it has that. And I will admit to only our listeners that I <laughs> did, that I didn't see it when I took the photo, <laughs> but so many people have commented on the dead tree that points to the main subject. There are so many other elements to this photo that struck me. Um, but that's certainly one of the selling features of it. So yeah, anything leading line to point to the subject of interest in the landscape, anything that, yeah. Look for it. Be creative. Train your eye. That's a good one. I like that. Mm -hmm. Well, it was thanks to my internet or my Instagram followers that the, the guy mentioned it. So I thought, oh, that's a good one. That's social media, man. We give and take. If people share stuff, I mean, our questions of the week, they're great ones that keep coming in from people in, in the comments. And we're learning a lot through social media. So why not? Yeah. Yep. And uh, I remember that image and can clearly see what you're describing phenomenal environmental portrait phenomenal all right ron what do you got uh my next one is just patience and it has you know it has nothing to do with anything technical and on more than one level like if you're going to be a wildlife photographer and you're going to be successful there are people that you know luck into a good image here and there by just running and gunning and driving and jumping out the car and getting an image and taking off uh, but the best images for me come with some preparation when I'm being very intentional. I get everything set up. If you, you know, let's take waterfowl, for instance. You know, Mark was talking about setting a blind. So be intentional about where you put it. Be intentional about getting yourself in the water, getting eye level. Be intentional about the time of year that you're going. So if you want to get, you know, that 
the waterfowl with young of the year with their hatchlings, you've got to time that out. Um, but be patient about those things. You're going to be sitting for hours several times with nothing happening at all. I mean, I've got probably my, my favorite and, and the most successful trips I've been on have been with swift fox. And I will tell you, people ask me, you know, again, how long did it take to get that image? I've got the first swift fox I got bringing food back into the den. Well, it depends on how you look at it. It was either, you know, eight years or it was one one thousandth of a second. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was years and years and years of trying to find the right situation. you got to find the the den that's they're tolerant and you've got to get there when the light's good. You got to get, you know, especially with swift Fox because they're nocturnal hunters. If you're not there first thing in the morning, you're never going to catch that shot. Um, so just being patient with the animals that you're photographing. Uh, if you get to a situation, you get that snapshot, get that out of your system and then just wait for that right behavior or, wait for that right moment where the light's just hitting them just right and then get your image. The eye contact Mark was talking about earlier, you know, wait for those moments. You don't have to sit there blazing away and burn up your card. Uh, just be patient with those. And then, you know, patience on over the long haul as well. Take the time to allow yourself to improve. Take the time to allow yourself to learn, but be patient with that process because it does take time. Love the game. Love, Love the pursuit. The yep, exactly. Right? Everybody will improve with time, with patience and practice. Everybody will improve. Don't, you know, let the weight of failure. It happens to everybody uh, at different times. We have expectations of re for results to turn out that don't. But with perseverance, they do, right? So, yeah, it's mm -hmm. a, great, a great tip. That speaks to our 10-day rule, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. So yeah, you, you always want to go somewhere where you can have at least 10 days. If you really want to get everything, if you want to have the best possible opportunity, spend the time out there. To come out with some crackerjack material. I mean, you right. need the time, especially to some remote destinations. If you're paying to travel, you're taking the time out of your regular scheduled life to do this, you want to do it right. And of course, when you get there, it could rain for the first couple of days. It could be windy and the animals are holed up somewhere. Something could happen. The flat tire on the truck shuts you down for a day because you can't, you know, you put the spare on, but you can't rely on the spare. You have to find a patch. Place Anyway, all these variables come into place that could be a curveball in your trip. So, yeah, we, our rule of thumb is 10 days. If we want to come out with material that we're going to be excited about promoting to our markets, that usually gives us an amount of time to accomplish something like that. You've got variable light, you've got unpredictable animal behavior, finding them in weather and various elements and just how we feel. Anyway, that's that's great. All right, number All right. five, or is this number five? Four. Now? No, we're, we're rolling into number four. Holy moly. Yeah, there's so much packed into this podcast. All right, number four, short and sweet but super important is to make sure that you're doing your post editing on a high quality monitor that represents most of the Adobe RGB 98 color gamut. And that's the business standard for photography. And sure, CMYK does play into print 
and processing. But to be honest, everything that I do personally, I work in Adobe RGB 98. Now, why this is important, not all monitors show this accurately. And therefore, what you are calibrating or preparing your image to look like might not be what it looks like down the internet line where you send it. If they have a properly calibrated, high quality monitor, it could look differently. So don't necessarily trust a monitor that's, that's cheap. Don't, don't trust any inferior monitor. Research what you're editing on and research online. It's, everything's accessible. You can find out the monitor that you're using and what percentage of the Adobe color gamut it shows that you can see and why this is important. And I went through this process. So I love my Macs. I switched to Macs about five years ago. I used PCs forever until that point. Um, the functionality and the shared platform of Macs and just the fact that most of my clients were on the Mac systems were the reasons I switched. Now, I bought a 2018 iMac 5K last year. Absolutely love it. I love the crispness of the 5K monitor, but it doesn't cover enough of the Adobe color gamut for me to be happy with what I'm putting out. Now, it's just me. I know a lot of photographers are, and I know that a lot of my clients, they're looking at the identical monitor I have, so what I see is what they should get. But that still goes from their monitor to the press department who lay it out, check for color correctness before it goes to print. And I want to be one of those people where minimum adjustments required to my imagery. So I also, in addition to the Mac, I, I had a Lacey monitor that was a high-end Lacey uh, for years, I think it cost me 2200 Canadian or something back in the day, but it was about eight years old and clearly done because we know they lose um, their accuracy over time. So after getting the Mac and not being 100% confident in the color gamut representation that I was seeing for editing, I went and purchased the ISO or ESO, depends how you want to pronounce it, ColorEdge CG277 monitor. This has been the standard for a long time in, in the industry for the high-end photo editing. So I tether that up. I have both monitors on. I'm doing all my editing now on the ISO and also have the Mac. And this will lead me into my fifth tip on the next round. The fifth hack goes right on after this. But in summary, make sure you've got a good monitor. There's no point in spending all your time pursuing and creating great wildlife images if the final post product that you finished, that you've prepared, the high res, low res, whatever you're sending out, if the color's off, if the saturation's off, if the brightness is off, it will not have that pop that we need on the screen to impress our buyers uh, digitally. Anyhow, you can experiment when it comes to print. If your whole world is about print, then you can calibrate and match up to your printer and to the printing company that you might use for your big metals or canvases and be confident after some experimenting that way. But when it comes to publishing, knowing it's going to go out to who knows who in what country or what state for them to print, you want to be as close as possible. And the rule of thumb is to watch the Adobe 98 uh, color representation. So the CG, the ISO ColorEdge CG277 monitor has the highest color gamut rating for Adobe of any that I'm aware of, and it's at 99% of the color gamut you can see on that screen. So that's my tip number four. Get a good just monitor. To add, just to add on to that, getting a good monitor, 
depending on the program that you do your post-processing in, I find that, and I, I was looking, I've been looking back through old images and I processed really, really dark. And, and that's something that's been consistent throughout. And then when I go to, to print, if you send it, you know, just like you've got it in computer, you send it to the printer and it, it prints dark. So what I've done to change that, and I, I learned this from listening to some landscape photographers talk about getting their images ready for print is, you know, you, first of all, have a high quality monitor like you're talking about. But secondly, in Lightroom, and depending on what program you use in Lightroom, you have the, the choice of using a, a black background or a white black background on, on your screen. If you choose the black background, everything looks bright enough. It, everything looks a little bit brighter. So when you go to print it or, or even when you send it out to, to post on social media, it's going to be too dark. So I've switched to using a white background or a white border around the images that I'm working on. And that forces you to, to lighten the image a little bit. And I find that it doesn't matter whether I'm sending them out to be printed or whether I'm just exporting for social media or exporting for somebody to review, they're properly exposed um, more often than not. So that's just a little sidebar trick to use with a, with a higher quality monitor idea. That's a good one. I think there are some programs where you can even work with a grayscale as yeah. you order. It doesn't yep. have to be black or white, but just a dull gray. Mm -hmm. I think that's beneficial as well compared to either extremes. If you okay. can. Michael, number four for you, sir. What is my fourth one? One thing you want to do is you always want to shoot at eye level or you slightly up. That slightly I, lower, you mean? Yeah, yeah angle you want up. to shoot angle up. up. You want to angle up, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think you always get a better image of an animal. It looks more regal. If you get a picture of a person, it looks more regal. If you're kind of slightly shooting up or with video, when we shoot interviews, you always want to shoot eye level for an interview. If you're shooting down, it just makes, it oftentimes makes the person or the animal look so much smaller and just kind of squattier and it just doesn't give that, that pop. So anytime I can do it, I'm always going to shoot from my knees if I can in any situation. But if, if it doesn't, I'm very seldom am I going to shoot down. It, I do every now and then just cause you have no other choice, right? If you want to shoot something, but make it a point to always try to place yourself in an area where you're going to shoot either eye level or shoot up just a bit. Uh, the way I had somebody explain it to me one time is you'd, if you shoot down on an animal, you're basically taking the power away from taking the power away from the animal or taking the power away from your subject. And I, you know, just what you're talking about, you're shooting, shooting up, you're kind of making them look more powerful for lack of a better adjective for me. But yeah, it, it that's well. that's a good one, Mike. Because a lot of people don't do that. You just take the shot they can get instead of trying to get themselves in position. Right. Well, aside from an environmental portrait, sometimes you're handcuffed and you've got to make the animal small down below or something. But, you know, there have been situations when filming bears where I've had a bear that might be a 250-pound black bear, but it's up higher on a bank. And with the telephoto, I can zoom in, and that bear, you'd swear, was 540 pounds. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and not 
not that it's all about size, but you know, it just just more majestic, more impressive of an image that way. So it's something to always be aware of when it's when it's safe and possible to do so. Good tip, Ron. Number number four. I kind of skipped over this one earlier, but we I talked about light right away, and light is probably one of the most critical. Aside from your subject, light's one of the most critical elements of your image and how you utilize the light that you've got. But the only thing, in my opinion, that trumps light is behavior. And we talk about this all the time, is watching for those moments where you get those unique behaviors. You know, there are a lot of people out there. If you look on Instagram, there are a lot of people out there that get great snapshots, get great portraits of wildlife. But what sets them apart is, is one of those two things, either light or behavior. And how you utilize the light, but you know the behaviors that I'm talking about. It might be feeding. It might be, you know, if it's a bird, bird in flight is always going to trump a bird that's roosted on a on a limb. If you've got, you know, I saw one image the other day. I can't remember who shot it. You guys might, but there are two fishers, and you know they're no, members of the Weasel family. We're not talking about that. <laughs> two fishers talking about that that was sorry I, I think go ahead one oh. going up one yeah. going up the tree yeah. on one side and one coming down the tree on the other that was unbelievable yeah paul paul in manitoba stunning shot buddy stunning shot i yeah, don't that was phenomenal. incredible yes that was he's, a great he's a, little he's a good piece guy of behavior that, yeah when i yeah that was one of those images and we encourage people we flip through in, through instagram a mile a minute, you know, and we and there we see. Let's say we see a hundred images at each visit, and there are probably three of those that we should just, if not more, three or four or five that we should stop and look at for a minute and take it in. Um, Absolutely, encourage people to do that. And this is one of those photos that, even though I was spinning through, it was like, what was that? Stop. That's what I thought too. I thought somebody's photoshopping uh, something, but then you look at it and no, it's he wouldn't. There, no, one up, one down. It was it was an insane image. It was great. Paul Paul works hard at it and spends a lot of time in the field and yeah, one fisher going up the tree and one going down, perfectly mirroring one hundred and eighty degrees from one another. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very unique image. So yeah, absolutely. Animal behavior. And behavioral images are what are going to get people's attention no matter where you're seeking it. And and patience pays off for that. And, and knowing the animal behavior, right? Knowing what these species, whatever you're pursuing. Maybe you go to some place where there are three or four or five different species you might find on that day. But you need to, for all kinds of respect and safety reasons, and then, of course, coming away with potentially behavioral shots, know what they do during that part of the year and, and what makes them photogenic and what they do. I mean, for me, right. I mean, I got to bring up moose cause I do once in a blue moon <laughs> and you know, that's a lip curling shot, you know, when the ruts on and, and the bull's pursuing a cow and he's confirming if she's in heat or estrus and tips his head back with that lip curl, man, you know, I'll wait all day for that photo to happen. I'll let all the other portraits go by if, if he's going to. I'll trade them all in for the lip curl at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. Well, that speaks to that video that I put up the other day of the the behavior of the moose, you know, that we put yep. up on on Instagram. It's I shot it with an iPhone. I shot it down. I just totally different than what I was just talking about. But 
it's just so interesting to watch that behavior is i mean the light wasn't yeah. that great it's just cool to watch you can so, see it from that perspective so well though it was kind of cool i mean by being way up on the boulder there i mean you got to see what they were doing that was and be like, safe yeah. about it yeah and be safe about and be safe it and about hear it. them the audio was great the yeah that was about behavior that went nuts because i mean that behavior how many people have seen that right two mature cow moose fighting for attention of a big bull over his wallow pit in the peak of the rut you know he's totally consumed with making the wallow pit and they're both in heat and they both want to be bred by him that day and they're you know have their front hooves flaying at each other they're chattering to each other that was awesome the color everything so There's another another example of being fast and and being ready to switch gears you know mike was filming with with another camera but the iphone became the tool of choice once you get up there and and it's happening that close to you yep for anything to, and especially for social media platforms use the phone whenever you can tell the story that's more of it it's you know a big part of not more but it's a big part of what we do nowadays is telling a story not just capturing that iconic photo it's telling the story behind it the adventure to get there and to get back all right my number five tip for today is about color do not be afraid of color now we all have our preferred style of presentation and ideas and ideals of how an image should look but saying that i see a significant percentage of imagery on instagram where photographers are clearly have sh i mean I, I know based on the quality of their work they're shooting in raw and we all know that raw imagery requires work for as, as far as post-production work on color and and saturation and various levels to make it as striking an image as it could possibly be to present to our markets and what i'm seeing is that and it's up to the viewer's eye we touched on monitor calibration and other things that we need to control and be cognizant of and to and to, to do our best to manage but at the same time color sells color does sell absolutely there's room there's black and white markets you know and there's dramatic rugged lighting with the sun glaring in our face and backlighting and rim lighting aside from those unique lighting situations color cells back in the day when i was shooting slide film kodachrome when i first started kodachrome was go to fujichrome had come out fujichrome had color kodachrome didn't kodachrome was dropped like a hot, hot rock gone <laughs> then fuji came out with velvia and it was a revolution in photography in the publishing world nobody wanted anything trust me i mean I, based on the volume of imagery nobody wanted anything but velvia you couldn't put something beside it that would sell like Velvia. Why? Because the saturation in the colors was phenomenal. You had to watch the light. You wouldn't want to shoot it in evening light and have it go orange and get funky and crazy. But a nice even overcast light, the colors were vibrant. And that's what people wanted to see in magazines, in print, on posters, on canvases, because that pops and it sells to the client. And it still does in our modern digital world. The trouble is, or actually the better word is the challenge is training our eye to the level of color that it needs to be to do well, any given image. And so don't be afraid of color. I see a lot of dull, flat imagery 
on Instagram when it comes to wildlife. Lighting can help increase the dramatic appeal, but color is a huge factor in the markability and appeal of a photograph. A digital photograph, an online application, like I said, no matter what, a metal, especially on HD metal, man, will that look awesome, the better the color. So you don't need to go over the top, but you know my philosophy is I push it as far as I can take the color and still have it look natural because that will always outsell a flat image. So work with the color, play with it. You know, you've got an image, you know, and it, you think it's, you've worked the vibrance enough, you've worked the levels enough so the contrast is striking enough on the image and the saturation. You know what I like to do? Uh, it's a bit tedious, but it, the end result is better for it. I'll prep my imagery. I work the raw, I save them in TIFF. I'll go through thousands of raw images and I'll create a couple of hundred TIFFs in a folder. And then a couple of weeks might have gone by. If I'm not rushed, I might have edited a few other subjects from other trips. I'll go back to those TIFFs. They should be done. They, they should look good. I revisit them a second time. I open them. And it's like, you know what? I can tweak that color another 10%. And, you know, I'm happy for doing it, happier for doing it. And they sell well based on that. So... My final tip for today's podcast from Mark Raycroft is do not be afraid of color. Take it to the edge. Don't go over, but take it to the edge of where you're comfortable. The better the color, the, the more your imagery will sell and appeal to your audience. Well, and you can see that on your Instagram, right? All you got to do is go look at Mark's Instagram. And I've started doing it. Well, I've been doing it for a long time, but it really makes a difference. It really makes a pop off the page and you're going to get a lot more people looking at your stuff. If you've got that color. Yeah, you're not going to win the hearts of every soul out there. But as far as the biggest audience, the biggest market, color does sell. It has to be striking. And you know what? These landscapes, especially the northern tundra, they look like that. Check it out in real person someday if you haven't already. I mean, it's amazing. So and you, you think of the eastern hardwoods. I mean, they have to pop. Those maple leaves have to be vibrant. So... Yeah, you see that. All I mean, there are definitely big hubs on Instagram where you see landscapes of color. You can, and they're done properly. But I see so many photographers whose images are way flatter than they need to be in their presentation. So just be aware of color and work it as, in as much as you can that you're comfortable with. Experiment with it. And I'm out. You guys, Michael, <laughs> number number five. Yeah, I'm out. Uh, you know, I had, I have one more listed here, but I kind of want to go, I want to throw it back on you. So you're not out. All so right. we did a podcast, I don't know, this past summer and we got onto the subject of the back button focus, mm. which I've always done. Now we do call ourselves wild and exposed and we can explain our name, but I don't know. I don't want to go anywhere here. What are you talking about? <laughs> so back button focus on most of these cameras, like yeah. all the cameras I have now have a little button for it, right? It's like a little joystick on the right half of the camera at the back. It's this toggle button, right? No, 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 no. No, you have a button up by your thumb where you just hit that button and it focuses. So that way you don't have to focus oh, right. with your okay. trigger finger, right? Okay. Sorry, I always thought you when you referred to that, you're talking about the, the little pad. You know, well, that's, talking kinda, about the that's part of this whole conversation, right? So Okay. All right. You So I've always done the back button focus, but then if you're going to move your little metering or focusing uh what do you call it what's the best way a little, a little, a little squares so you got a little 
the focus yeah. point. It's a little, yeah, an icon. It's a little red dot, a little red square that follows through the grid. Right. And you I have a grid. On and on these cameras I use, it's a pretty big grid. And a mm. lot of times, you, if you're use, relying on autofocus, you want to move that focus point so that it's in the right spot. And you could actually use that point for uh, metering too, right? Yeah, for spot. So yeah. I've always been back button guy, and I'm, but I end up missing some shots because I'm not fast enough. You pull your thumb off of the back button, you move in that focus point, and all of a sudden you've missed it because you got to go back to your focus after you've moved your point. Mm. I know you, Mark, you use your shutter button for focus. And then that frees up your thumb on the back to move that, to be able to move that little toggle That's so that you can get That's top secret, it. Michael. Top <laughs> secret. Well, the only reason I bring it You're up is we supposed... talked about it in another podcast. No. Yeah, no, you're right. But it's something that I've always, you know, ducked and run about because as a professional, I hear all everybody's doing it the other way. But this is what works for me. And I work with the, you know, the workflow that is the most efficient to get my product is what I go with. And if there's something new comes along or I'm educated to to learn something like white balance years ago, how you know, last podcast and touched on that and learned that day by hearing that conversation about what the benefits of cloudy white balance settings, then I'll shift gears. But I have not seen anything that would improve my efficiency, but I know that most people use the back button focus like you're describing. There are people I, out there that say you absolutely cannot be a professional photographer if you don't use back button focus. <laughs> yeah, oh, but I never really thought about it steak, until we talked about heart. it. <laughs> and we talked I about the podcast, and then I'm like, you know, that makes all the sense in the world because I do miss some stuff because you're too busy moving. The, even if, you know, we're talking milliseconds, right? We're not talking, a, mm -hmm. you know, it 10 minutes. We're, it very much so counts. So I think at least give it a go. You know, try, I don't if, miss especially if you're out focus. there practicing. With yeah, For, for autofocus, I, I don't miss. I mean, I, I'm not trying to say I'm perfect with it, but my technique by using the, so the front button, and, and nowadays with digital, I mean, you know your camera. You can feel when you press the button halfway down and it clicks on the focus and grabs your subject. And you, it's sensitive enough that you can push it down and do your burst after that if you want. You're not firing at the same time. That doesn't happen. I don't know if people switch because of that concern. They push it partway down and blast off film and pay for it. I don't know. But it's always the cameras, even the film cameras. I mean, that's always been the functionality, and it's always worked for me. And I worked the back pad for the focus points, as we mentioned, and then press the shutter halfway down, and I'm locked, and I'm ready to go, and I shoot with right. no delay. But but you're right, Ron. I've heard that repeatedly, which is why this is the subject I have never brought up on our podcast <laughs> myself. <laughs> But it works yeah. for me. Yeah, but I'm you... I'm the same as you. I have, but I have mine set up so it'll it'll focus on both. If I if I use the back button, it overrides the the shutter release. Okay. But if I just use if I'm moving if I'm trying to compose or I'm switching composition like we've talked about you know working the scenario, moving my composition around different taking advantage of different looks then I'll I'll just use the uh, shutter release in the front. But you can set it, as we talked about earlier, customize your buttons. You can set both of them to focus. But if you use a back button, that overrides front, so it'll stay locked, and then you just use your shutter release. But I, I'm the same because I'm always toggling between focus points. So is, is that the difference? So what I do with the two to five hundred, I am changing my composition every two seconds or less. 
I'm making the most of that situation. I'm zooming in on the animal. I'm zooming out. I'm vertical. I'm horizontal. I want that cover shot, the vertical. I want the horizontal. I want the environmental portrait. I want the tight shot. Oh, there's another one coming into the scene. I want that. So I'm moving nonstop. My frame is always moving. So my focus points are moving to accommodate that because the position of the animals changed every time I roll my telephoto and change the distance. So would that make logical sense from someone like you, Michael, who's or, or wrong that have done the back button focus? Is it is it faster that way because I'm changing composition nonstop? Does that I've heard people say that the back button made it faster for them and they didn't understand how I could be shooting this way. I didn't play in the conversation. I was just like, well, this is what I do and I like what I get. So, you know, unless until I, you until you bring up the toggle with moving your focus points with with people that have that mindset. They, I guarantee you it hasn't even crossed their mind how oh. much quicker they could be in their changing their composition. I still talk to people that use the back button and they focus and recompose. It's all oh. single. I'm like, no, you're killing I, me small I, I as you can't, you can't do that. <laughs> no, I, I think it material. makes a huge difference. I think, you know, it's all about speed and it's all about capturing that one little millisecond of time. And if you're if your thumb is busy up on top and you're not on that toggle, I think you're gonna. And I didn't really think about it ever until we brought it up in a podcast earlier this summer, and I got to thinking, you know, I now on to be honest, I haven't switched mine over. I still use the back button, and I'm fairly fast at it. I don't miss that many sure. shots, but right. I do miss shots. I really think I do miss shots. And it one of the other things I had on my list that I skipped over was tripod or no tripod. It's the same thing there. You have a tripod, you're going to miss shots. If you mm -hmm. can go without a tripod, you're going to get these shots. And then do you want to just get those shots? You know, there's all these little things that you can think about and try. And it goes back to another tip that we had earlier that you had, Ron, was practice. You know, try it. Go out and try with the your shutter button and then try it with the back focus and try moving stuff. And I think you'll find that using your shutter button... And maybe I didn't know that you can actually have them both set up. I guess the way yeah. my camera did it is it would default to the back button, shut off the the shutter button, and then the shutter was just purely just to, or the the forefinger button is just to take the picture. Right. Yeah, your shutter can be just to actuate, actuate the shutter, or it can be focus and shutter. And then your back, you set that AF button on the back just for focus. But it'll it'll override. So if you're locked on to focus, and then you press the shutter release, you're good. You're not going to refocus. But yeah, if you need to recompose, then you recompose with the with the toggle, and then your uh, shutter release. If you go into your custom settings, you'll see the different options for that shutter release, and you can you can have it set for both. Well, you do have to be a software genius nowadays to adjust all these oh, cameras. Oh no doubt. The yeah, exactly. The menu systems in these cameras are—they're awesome, but you have mm -hmm. to be—you have to have a degree from MIT to operate <laughs> some of them. Exactly. To but find it's the trial right and spot. error, right? You just got to yeah. keep playing with it. So that—that it's—I don't know. That's I've, a good one. That's always been in my mind ever since we talked about it. And the guy who we were talking to—you guys remember Chaz? Mm -hmm. He's the same way as you, Mark. You two were went up. off on it for five minutes because you finally found someone that does it right you know right. your way 
and um, right. and I think it's the smart way. I really do. I I just need to try it. I'm not I, losing stuff because my focus is somewhere else through the camera. Yep, I think it's fast. I so, think I think it's the it, smart way to do it. With these zooms, with these zooms, and and you know the amount of different composition that we're hoping to accomplish on a given photo shoot. I mean, those dull sheep we did wrong last year. That I mean, we were static. We were stuck in a spot, and they kept moving up on this high ridge above us, within telephoto range, and doing different things and creating. Yeah. I mean, the composition potential was off the charts. Horizontals, verticals, tight shots, rugged rock faces that dropped off into nothingness. I mean, how could you not just go mad working composition? And uh, with the two to five hundred, that was perfect because zoom in, zoom out, horizontal, vertical. Yep. Oh, there are two rams. Boom, all over again. Repeat. You know. So in order to do that, you know, it's got to have a good workflow through the gear, through the equipment, and yeah, having your thumb do two things, I would think, would slow it down. All right, Ron. All right, Ron. Um, my last one is, you know, especially when you're just getting started, find somebody that'll be honest with you about your images. Your your mom is always going to tell you that <laughs> they're fantastic. So this is this is not a job for your mom or your dad. They're always going to love your work. What but, about your spouse? Uh, Can you trust your spouse? Sometimes, I guess, probably a little bit too honest there i don't know <laughs> oh right the other way nice right but find somebody that's going to be honest with you about your images um that's going to give you positive feedback you don't want somebody who's bagging on you all the time but that, that is not a bad thing you got to have thick skin because part of being a photographer is you're going to put yourself out there often for other people to see your images you're throwing stuff on instagram that you think is fantastic but when you there's always somebody better. You know, when I was when I was training people to fight in, in wrestling and in football, my dad would always say, you know, there's always somebody out there that's better. So you've got to you got to work at perfecting your craft and you got to listen to people that are giving you feedback. And I think it applies here as well. Nobody's trying to take you out of the game. If they're giving you criticism, it's probably something you need to listen to or be willing to at least consider and take that criticism and try to improve your photography. You know, along with that is as you go, keep your, you know, your best of 2018. And then when you get to the end of 2019, look at your best of 2019 and then look back at your best of 2018. I can promise you, you know, if you're, if you're listening to that criticism and you're, you're making those positive improvements, you're going out and watching the university of YouTube, all that kind of thing there's always ways to improve your game. Uh, and, and when we first started talking about this wildlife po podcast, wildlife photography podcast with Mike up in Alaska, I said, man, I already have my tagline at the end. I said, I'm going to sign off every show this way. He said, well, what's that? And I said, you know, we're always looking for ways to improve our wildlife photography, improve our images. So up yours. <laughs> Now think about that, listeners, and it means to, oh, yeah. Anyway, it's, it's a positive yeah. message. It is. It, it is a positive message. It just comes across funny, but I I think that's one of the the things that's going to improve your work the quickest is by finding somebody that's been in it for a while, and allow yourself to be mentored to be shaped by that person. You're going to find your own style Even in a couple, the end. A couple people. or a couple. Yeah, exactly. Get a you know different perspectives. Yeah. Sure. And when you think you're getting there, 
look at one of these guys on on Instagram that's been at it for a while and you'll find that you know there's always something that you can improve. So I, I don't think you could have come up with a better end one. That was that's I wholeheartedly agree. That is awesome. Well done. Well done. Ron is dropping his microphone. <laughs> Sun even shines on a dog's butt some days, right? <laughs> awesome. Well, I hope that you've enjoyed this week's 15 hacks and tips from Michael, Ron, and myself, our giant pro tip podcast. Many more tips coming in the podcast ahead, of course, as well as some more exciting content that we'll keep under wraps for now. I want to, in closing, take a moment and do something I don't do often enough and thank our talented and hardworking producer, Missy, for all that she does to create this podcast for your listening enjoyment. Also, I want to take a moment and ask that no matter what podcast platform you're listening to us on, make sure to click on that icon to subscribe or follow. And please show us the love. Give us a positive review, that five-star rating or the thumbs up as those allow us to do what we love to do and to bring you these podcasts on a weekly basis. You can also see more of our team's content on Instagram, Facebook, on our YouTube channel at Wild and Exposed Podcast, and of course on our website at wildandexposed.com. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.